0: Welcome to a new episode of UCU Campus Chats, everyone. Um, My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the lecturers at University College Utrecht. I teach economics as well as one of the tutors. And I'm here today with Corey Wright. Corey, could you maybe introduce yourself shortly?
1: Yes, uh, my name is Corey Wright. Um, I am a Canadian. now kind of resettling in Utrecht, Netherlands. And um, I have taken on various roles at, at, at UCU, um, including, I am the director of the East Africa program, the famous field course at UCU. and um, But in addition, I'm part of the anthropology track and I teach um, classes related to international development, environmental studies, and, and theories of power. Um, and so I'm happy to be settling and be making home in Utrecht and at UCU.
0: Okay, I'm curious to hear, how you weigh here basically because as you mentioned you're from canada originally and that's also where you uh did all your studies so you started out with a let me see a bachelor in sociology and religious studies at the university of british columbia Uh, why those subjects
1: um i come from a family of scientists (laughs) Um, and particularly agronomists, agricultural scientists. I grew up in in the prairies, um, and I was really ready to move into science and study wildlife ecology. As it was I originally uh, went into to study at, at in my undergrad. Mm-hmm. But I think in time, the various contemporary issues in the world, um, particularly I I was born in Africa. I, I uh, my parents who have always worked internationally. So I've kind of lived in different places um, and so on. And I, I think I just was so astounded by the injustices in the world, astounded by how the world operated, how societies were operating. And in time, I decided I really realized that I, 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 I wanted to study Inequalities. I wanted to understand how our societies operated and how that privileged some and disadvantaged others. And so that that that's really where the sociology came in. And particularly, it was kind of the in the sociology, it was critical development studies, um, looking at international development, understanding it differently, understanding world systems, and so on. And, um, and yeah, and that, I, I spent some time as a teenager in Tanzania, um, and I think it was there where I was mature enough to start to understand and, and see kind of the operations of our world order around me and, and, and the inequalities that, that entailed. So I, that, that's the sociology part, um, I think, that, that drove me there. And then religious studies, uh, yeah, I mean, on a personal note, I guess I, I, I grew up in a very religious part of Canada. Um, and 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 had a, grew up in a religious family, and I, and then living internationally and seeing different religions and and getting um, exposed to different religious viewpoints and trying to grapple with, you know, various claims of absolutism and and so on, and and I. I, that drove me to say, listen, I want to understand, um, you know, and in, in some ways it was really the sociology of religion. Um, I, I was very interested in understanding how religion, what role religion played in our society. And, um, you know, I remember one of my major papers was the, you know, kind of looking at education and religion and, and, and so on and looking at gender and religion and, and looking at issues of sexuality and religion and so there was a again probably more of a sociology religion that that, um, that kind of um, drove me into studying more deeply um religion and various religious worldviews, but but particularly how those articulate with different social forces and, and social patterns and trends
0: okay and do you remember like a specific moment where that, that tickled your interest something that happened or that you experienced uh, when it came to religion um because your own background was christianity or
1: yes yes i think you know to be honest i think it was i think it particularly was around sexuality um and particularly around trying to understand in this case particularly the christian communities who were excluding um, the gay community and 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 all of the theology that surrounded how they justified not loving these neighbors <laughs> because <laughs> they didn't look the same or they didn't um, love the same people. And that, I think that, that really was, I think, a major pushing point at some point um, and, 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 and getting engaged and learning more about the community, developing close friendships and love relationships with people from the community and, and realizing I'm accepted. Because of my sexuality in in these in this religious community, but but so these others aren't, and I think at a young age that began to press on me and began to again coming from a, quite a conservative rural Canadian context in that regard. So so I, I think that was a moment. I think it was um, the the caring relationships I had with with um, the gay community at the time that and, and gay friends at the time that that were. Not accepted, and 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 that 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 drove me to say, okay, what is going on, and how do we understand this and address it, and um, and so on.
0: Yeah, and imagine also the contradiction simply between what is being preached and how it's being put into action in a way. Love thy neighbor, but not that neighbor.
1: Absolutely, no. That that began to really fascinate and anger me. Um, you know, uh, very much so. Um, I, I grew very critical and, and very angry towards this type of exclusionary um, politics within some religious communities and
0: so on. But, and how did it affect your own place in that community? Because I imagine that led to conflict <laughs> in many ways.
1: Yeah, no, very much so. I think um, I um, it became a very political justice um, kind of choice and decision to not be affiliated with those um, communities um, quite quickly. And um, yeah, so there's a, uh, you can't, you don't belong anymore by any means um, when you go through these types of changes and, and recognitions and, and awareness phasing and
0: so on. Yeah. And um, if it gets too personal, do please say so. And then <laughs> be honest if you don't want to answer a question. If you say you don't belong anymore at some point. Um, yeah. How was that transition then? Because then you have to find new communities, new people. Yeah, you
1: know, I think I think I, you know, in my yeah, I mean, for me, it's the classic, you know, rural farmer, small town farmer family, you know, boy moving to the big city and moving to and getting exposed and getting introduced to through a university, right? being introduced to all these different um, communities and communities that inspired me and thrilled me and motivated me to get involved in justice issues and everything else it was all of that so I guess you know that became my community that became where I began to belong and and so that transition wasn't so difficult in that regard. I mean, there certainly some some. There's definitely certainly a certain lot of re- identity restructuring and everything else for anybody that, you know, has ever um, gone through similar similar processes can can speak to. Um, but so the, the, I don't want to discount the challenges, but at the same time, because of this change of environment for me, and because of the what the university environment and communities and all of those the groups I got a part of, how they became my my place of belonging and identity
0: yeah yeah and i imagine that's something that a lot of students or, or, yeah. or I as well can recognize i certainly in that so. myself as well yeah yeah and i think so you also mentioned the issues of inequality is there anything in particular there that stands out in your um
1: no i think i think probably with my growing up internationally and in international development context often and, and parents that were very critical and socially aware and um, kind of quite they, they, that, that, that there was something they got, you know, certainly in how do you say a seed planted in me, certainly in terms of seeing these issues, understanding that just how unfair and so on. And I, so I think there was just repeated experiences whether it be growing up in different contexts particularly Tanzania Um, and then but then you know I quickly I after a year of university I quit and I moved to you know um, inner city New York and worked in uh, you know more of a social work type context of of connecting families with services and in some of the poorer neighborhoods and I, I it's just been always something I've wanted to understand and I've wanted to be a part of and I've wanted to I guess I often these days think a lot about allyship and despite some of the problems with that term I mean it's how do we live as allies in this world and and that I think inspired me from quite a young age and um and a host of different experiences to accumulated and you know, in terms of my my general route of arriving where I am today, actually after my undergrad, um, I I was disillusioned with academics. I, I I didn't I didn't I don't think I was exposed to some of the more engaged academics in academia that that I now know exists. But at the time, I was I, I really thought there was little value for for pursuing academics. And so I moved into a professional program of social work and particularly kind of international community development and this kind of anti-racist, anti-oppressive kind of approaches to building relationships in communities and so on. And so that kind of drove me to really begin to study and try to figure out, well, how can I, what what skills do I need to learn and competencies do I need to develop to actually build these relationships and, and, and maybe be a part of the changes that I, I wanted to see. And so, yeah, I, I studied social work actually at, at Wilfrid Laurie University. And with the idea that I would move into my a professional field, whether that be, I hadn't decided that time, whether that be international related or otherwise, but it really ended up going into international. That's where I started my master's research in health in, um, in Tanzania. And, and trying to understand or look at how different international groups and um, national ministry and, and health services were, were, were working with indigenous peoples in Tanzania and, um, and all of the kind of discourses that um, kind of, I guess, I think, labeled them as problems um, and and how therefore the services and programs developed and, and, and so on in, in not great ways and having all the host of adverse effects that these types of programs do. And so I was kind of interested to look at, well, how how can we work differently and more effectively across difference um, and whether that's in the field. And now, of course, whether that's in the field of health or whether that's in the field of other other issues, um, it really comes down to that. And so so anyway, that's the so that kind of took me in that route. And, but yeah, I guess so much of it has been oriented towards um, kind of understanding and trying to be a part of changing kind of these very unequal systems we have in place.
0: Yeah. I think in the last 10 or 15 years or so, there's been more and more attention to the adverse effects you mentioned that yes. this help can have. What have you seen yourself in the field there and how would you change it to
1: yeah. Yeah, I think I think so often, particularly in the field of health, with in the in the communities I had worked with, there's I think it was very culturally antagonistic you know it was driven towards it was this this all these narratives around harmful traditions and this or that and and it was very problematizing um difference um and and i think and so the adverse effects of course were were the community i think it was re-entrenching some of the actually ironically re-entrenching some of the issues that these international groups might be trying to work in and change and um whether that be you know diverse sexual practices uh, or otherwise in the case of hiv aids and um and so so the it was re- retrenching i think it becomes it ends up triggering an identity politics if you will um of of, of kind of an us versus them which you know um can and ends up actually entrench or like ex- exacerbating the vulnerabilities of these communities and then, and they kind of re-entrench, they withdraw um, 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 and so on and so on. And so I was more interested in how do we, again, and I, how do we be a part of just facilitating important dialogue, facilitating. So it's almost more of a communicative action type approach of how do we just, sit in circles and deliberate and and and, and allow um, communities to kind of confront these various crises um, such as in, in the case of my master's research hiv aids and, and 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 kind of work through it in 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 some autonomous way through a self, in 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 some sovereign self-determining way for these indigenous communities and um, and, and what is the role, if any, of, of people from outside or organizations? And um, yeah, so so the adverse effects have been, I think, a re and I think a, kind of a further marginalization. Um, so as these international groups sometimes have, you know, spent more and more time and become more and more strategic in how they try to engage these communities, it's actually further in increasing the divide between them and and that that I don't think is is very good
0: because you because you did your master in social work yeah the timeline right more or less um after your master did you go to Tanzania or did that come before and
1: no so my I did my all of my master's research was was a project looking at um, gender and indigeneity vis-a-vis HIV AIDS in Tanzania okay. so that's where I, 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 I first or I went back to Tanzania um, in my master's I mean that's like many years ago now <laughs> and but but yeah so that's and so I was in Tanzania then, and that's really where, to this day, like the relationships I st- I still have, and we the people who the communities that still host the, the UCU students each year are actually those communities and the relationships I began building in my masters. And that's again, I, I guess, like two thousand three, mm-hmm. and and I and then I, I I stayed. I I I was so inspired, and I found my time there so enriching. I actually just, I stayed. I I chose to stay and I I had, I frankly didn't have plans to leave. Um, And so I was there working and living um, in particularly assisting. I was part of kind of supporting or, or, or collaborating with Indigenous groups trying to develop their own organizations. Mm-hmm. So that they could kind of manage and control their own development trajectories, so-called development trajectories or, you know, own and determine their own HIV AIDS programming. Right. So, so I, that's what I became passionate about. And, and so I, I, I lived in Tanzania and, and, and continued with the relationships I built through my master's and, 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 and was part of kind of co-founding various organizations with, with, with some of the indigenous communities. And um, and that's what I was planning. I, I, I did. And I, I stayed there for several years. And then um, I don't know if you wanted me to continue here, but then, of course, the interesting point is, well, how did I end up from there at UCU? So the, the connection there is, well, basically, the founder of the UCU East Africa program, Caroline Archambault, mm-hmm. um, was in a dilemma in about 2008 and because she... Um, she was planning the program, but there was the election kind of crisis in Kenya and a lot of civil conflict and insecurity in Kenya that year. So she she was kind of in quite a, a dilemma and a, and a panic and somehow she got the name of this Canadian living in rural northern Tanzania and who was myself and somehow she got my name and uh, I think there's quite a debate on who gave her my name or how she got my name. But in any case, she got my name. I received an email to which asked me if I was willing to host this student group from this city in the Netherlands that I'd never heard of and couldn't pronounce. <laughs> and I said, yes. And that was in 2008. And um, and I, her and I grew very close. and And I really, really loved and valued what I was seeing in the East Africa program. It really reminded me of what... We are objectives and aims in my social work program with kind of placing students in, in, in these kind of very disorienting, very kind of disjunctural kind of um, places where they had to confront difference, which means they confront themselves in new ways and, and they develop and they, they learn all these competencies, I think, for living and working in a world, um, a global world like we have. And. And so anyway, I got very, very excited and inspired by what I was seeing. And so so continued to teach part-time or continued to contribute each year, continued to host the students each year. And slowly, slowly, um, Carol um, got other opportunities. And, and, and so there was this opportunity to kind of fill her shoes and, and fill in her position. And that's what I did. And and, and then um, slowly at that time, of course, Lanya was the director, Lanya Jakubowska. And, and she, of course, you know, continued to invite me and ask me to teach more on campus. And I think originally that was trying to make more of a coherence of the whole program um, in terms of the, the Dev 21 plus the field course and internships. So so I did that. And, and then then slowly all of a sudden I get invited to, oh, we would love an environmental anthropology class. And so then that comes onto my play. I'm like, okay, that sounds great. You know, <laughs> and before I know it, of course, here I am full time and, and and on a permanent contract.
0: Yeah, because um, yeah. one of the courses you're teaching right now is anthropology of con- for conservation and global environmentalism. What yeah. is that about? It sounds fascinating, yeah. but I have no idea what to imagine with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, so, so that, that builds on my own PhD research. So one of the things that happened while I was living in Tanzania for all those years, and, and mainly focusing on, on, on the field of, of health, um, what I started to witness was more and more of these international conservation NGOs all of a sudden being very present in, in these territories and in these spaces, whether it's in meetings, I'm running into them, whether it's on the on the back road, the rural roads, I'm running into these fancy SUVs with WWF written on them and so on. At the same time, A lot of international tourism companies coming in and 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 trying to lease off land because there's a lot of wildlife in these areas of northern Tanzania where I work and and so of course you've got all of this market demand for for global tourism kind of emerging and so and 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 then there was a lot of talk among the community of like Well, what is the impact going to be for us? And you've got some community members saying this is such a great opportunity for us, and means we can make new, have find new sources of revenue to kind of create protected areas and then lease them off to tourism companies and so on. But then you had this whole other part of the communities that were, um, you know, obviously very nervous and saying, "No, I've heard from my friend in this other area of Tanzania that they've lost all use and all access to their land through this, right?" So all of a sudden you've got this serious dilemma and concern around land rights, around um, sovereignty over their territory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that drove me to begin a PhD that was in anthropology, but really anthropology of development. So studying these kind of so-called development type programs. But in my case, those were very much conservation-based, right? So it was very much... Housed in environmentalism, housed in how do we care for the wildlife, you know, and 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 in fact, underpinning that, of course, is how do we make money off the wildlife, right, through the global tourism. So, and so all this kind of became part of this development scheme in in Tanzania, and which was infiltrating and really beginning to reconstitute the spaces and the people that I was working with for several years. So that that became my PhD focus. So. My PhD focus was, is looking at these so-called development projects, but again, in, in this case, conservation and tourism projects that were are getting now kind of um, applied and scaled up across the territories I worked in and, and, and trying to understand how communities are engaging that strategically or otherwise, how, what are the impacts on the communities for better or for worse. Um, what does it mean in terms of their, their traditional uses and and, and, and their their sense of space and their, 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 their use, uh, that how their, 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 their resources are managed, um, and what types of, how is it transforming their traditional sy- indigenous systems and indigenous ways of knowing. So that became my focus. So, so in sum, <laughs> the course, and it comes out of that interest and that focus. So I, it's, the course is, it's called Environmental, Anthropology of Conservation. More generally, you could just consider it an environmental anthropology course. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but, and, you know, and what is the other part of that title? I, I can't remember anymore, but, but environmentalisms, the global environmentalisms. And so just understanding that all of this is obviously entangled in, in in globalization processes and particularly particularly discourses around the environment how we see the environment how we understand human non-human relations within that construct and 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 what it means for new subjects for for new ways of inhabiting the world and and, and sharing that with with non-human species etc cetera, etc cetera. so so it's a it's a course that really looks at that. And so we look at the history of environmental theory and anthropology, the history of political ecology theory, um, and how that's emerged and evolved over time. And, and then the course, and I think this is why students enjoy it as much as they do, the course moves into kind of well, what are the burning issues in, in environmental anthropology, right? And yeah. our anthropology of conservation. And so we move into politics of mining. We move into politics of climate change. We look at the UN reforestation programs and how all the politics and cultural politics kind of intertwined in that. And we, um, yeah, what else? I mean, we look at the new political ontology and and this whole anthropology Anthropocene and what it means for our world and so we we really dig into quite a range of kind of contemporary issues but applying more of and trying to educate students on on what that kind of anthropological lens looks like and and how it can contribute to uh, our larger kind of goal of of making positive change or understanding issues of environment better and and uh, making positive change in the world
0: yeah 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 that actually links perfectly to my next question Um, because before the interview I actually asked our students and our alumni if there's anything that they wanted to ask you okay Um, and I got a couple of replies and one of them Mm -hmm. is from Lorenzo Seneci I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly but uh, he's one of our alumni Um, and his question is do you think that the, the pandemic will cause long-lasting or even irreversible changes in the tourism-based conservation model in Africa.
1: (laughs) Well done, Lorenzo. Um, (laughs) So will the pandemic have a long-term effect with these models? Um,
0: So can you please predict the future for us?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think it can, not I think it has to, and I think it will. I think to what degree, I guess, becomes the question. But so I think what Lorenzo alluding to, of course, is this, and this is what we talk about, and this is my own focus of my own research is really what we refer to as this kind of neo- neoliberal conservation, this kind of market environmentalism. So, and, and, and particularly in places like East Africa that are, how do you say, have abundant, you know, Infamous wildlife and and iconic wildlife, whether it be the elephants or the lions or the other zebra or the giraffe. I mean, th- there there's this abundant wildlife. So so tourism now becomes a vehicle, according to this this narrative, a vehicle to to conserve these wildlife. So um, selling what is it? Selling nature to save nature is the idea. So. And now, like, yeah, exactly. And lorenzo got a very important point. So let me give the example of the community I work with and, and have been living and working with for so long. You know, they did adopt out of some pressure from the government and, and other international NGOs and so on, they adopted this kind of protected area. It's called the wildlife management area. But the whole logic of it, building on this idea of neoliberal conservation, was that the revenue from tourism would generate. You know, new revenue sources for for the community and compensate them, frankly, for for choosing to kind of move away from and not continue to use in their traditional way these these protected areas. Well, yeah, exactly. And the pandemic has meant there's no tourists, so uh-huh. there's no revenue, yeah. and um, and so that I think is I think definitely going to leave some serious questions and 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 about the long-term viability of this type of a model and and I do think so I work or I'm close to you know a couple scholars out of Aachen, um, Busher and Rob Fletcher, Brown Busher and Rob Fletcher and they have a, a book called regard or that touches on their model of convivial conservation and, and they're trying to really shift away from one a separation of hu- human nature kind of models so what we call fortress conservation moving away from that and moving away from these market environmentalism this reliance on a market this commodification of nature yeah. as, as somehow going to be the solution and, and 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 so i think yeah if there's any time where their model of so-called convivial conservation is going to get more talked about and, and questioned by these communities, and hopefully the trust, other trustees such as the government officials and so on in Tanzania, whereby people begin to really question the long-term viability. So, I to I answer Lorenzo, I, I think it will. Now, this is where power comes into play, and you've got these incredibly powerful forces of the international conservation NGOs who have a particular vision of what this should look like and the international, massive international multinational corporation tourism corporations that, that are, have such a voice and such an influence on the trajectories of our policies in a ta- place like Tanzania doesn't makes doesn't leave me with much hope in <laughs> some days. And so I think because of that type of influence, this model may continue to just be stumble forward and continue to be the dominant model in conservation due to those those various interests irrespective of of but that's always been the case in my opinion. I don't think these models were really based on you know good ecological science or 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 actually you know kind of compassion for these communities or so-called development for these communities. I don't think it was ever really about that, really. I think it was always very much situated in the interests of, you know, a Western environmentalism kind of discourse and, 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 and form and and a market interest from international um, companies.
0: Yeah. yeah, and you see that right now, so in the Dutch uh, development aid, Yep. Where the goal has shifted from indeed, well, the stated goal was to help countries develop and catch up in a way. Yeah. but now it's become very clearly about helping countries only if they if it's in our interest to do so in terms of international yeah. trade, which is yeah. a deeply yeah. cynical but also very openly stated view. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the work of Eleanor Ostrom? Yes. Because, yeah, I mean, she's indeed, um, it's surprising she got the Nobel Prize in economics because, of course, mm-hmm. one of the theories in economics yeah. about common grounds is, is called yeah. the tragedy of the commons. Yeah. Basically yeah. saying is everyone has access, it will be overused. And um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. her work actually found the opposite the moment you start yeah. looking at the social constructs and the community aspects of it. And you see that actually you won't get that overuse. Yeah. Because the community itself has ways of making sure that everyone things of yeah. bigger picture
1: yeah no exactly and so my research actually you know I, I'm I um, have done presentations at the what is it the international Association of the Commons do you you probably know that larger association group it's an international one but there's also a, a, a Western Europe um, association there and so I'm affiliated with them and, and in fact my research can be Really comes under this umbrella of, of this idea of the erosion of commons. Yeah, and 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 so yes, um, all of these kind of attributes that Ostrom looked at in terms of common pool resource management was kind of characterized how historically these this so. It, this indigenous community, which just to be clear, this is the Maasai, the famous Maasai that we, everybody seems to know about. And they're kind of iconic, I guess, in, in Africa. But but their their traditional way of living on the land and, and using it and managing it, it was very much in line with Ostrom's, you know, kind of key characteristics of how we can successfully manage the commons. But of course, that's what I'm interested in. It is now that's getting eroded in different ways. Yeah. And And so, in fact, you could take and, and and you know, it's probably a future paper for me at some point. But but to take the, those um, various characteristics of of this successive compend management, and look at how they how they used to be, and then now how they're slowly getting eroded, and so on in different ways. And sometimes I want to be clear here because this is another part of my work it's not always negative right um i i what i'm actually interested in in my own research is more how these communities very innovatively and very ingeniously kind of strategically engage some of these changes and actually find ways we use this term called in, institutional bricolage and and so how through these institutional reforms in in terms of for example how commons are managed how how are they kind of being strategic and finding innovative creative ways to still maintain their interests still kind of almost smuggle in their traditional ways of knowing and doing things you know what i mean so i I think that's the other side of my research that I, i thought i'd emphasize there um so there's all these you know kind of these devastating effects of globalization and so on as we all well know but but i'm i'm trying to also tell a different story on terms of how communities really kind of how they become these bricoleurs if you will and and kind of creatively manage and and, and navigate these changes some in sometimes surprising and unexpected ways and, and ways that aren't often being documented um, the, the 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 sensational negative stories are always more always going to be more interesting even i think in academic research sometimes
0: yeah no this actually links to uh, Flora Gill Martin's question she is has- mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is, and what are your thoughts on indigenous environmental sustainability used as a model to mitigate the effects of climate change, um, particularly in terms of whether that's feasible or not, and colonial use? Um, yeah. Do you have an example, maybe, of something where you can say, okay, I see here that there's like an indi- indigenous model that is really helping with sustainability issues?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I certainly like I mean, I, I in my work, looking at this community and they, they have a, you know, a, a very important kind of nested governance system that goes from from different scales and how their their nation, how their community is organized in terms of sections and subsections and so on um and 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 all of the various communication and deliberative spaces that 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 are characterizing decision making and, and the politics and management and and uh, and i think they are yeah i think they really are demonstrating an important model and a, and a good model for how we can live in the commons and how we can again resist these narratives of tragedy the commons or, or these justifications and pressures to privatize um, our, our our environmental spaces and so on.
0: Can um, you give a concrete example? What's Can that? Can you give a concrete example of how it's done?
1: Oh I guess I don't know. I mean my closest friendship and and and, and my and my interlocutor, if you will, of uh, in my all of my research is a is a young traditional leader who's been designated as a traditional leader in in the in this longido Maasai community. And and so I, I mean it's he I've just always been inspired and he is again he's so he oversees this one subsection of, of the common territory. And and is responsible to mediate conflict there, but also responsible to join larger at a larger scale, join other meetings with other leaders, and they therefore make decisions based on a larger scale of the commons and re, and, and 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 mediate conflict accordingly within that. And, and so it's this, this structure of decision making and, and, and kind of, I mean, what we would some of us, would call, I guess, call democratization, like kind of this participation of these various leaders at different scales. And, um, and so they, they manage the rangelands. They manage when, where do we go? Where do we bring our cows, our livestock? At what time of year? When do we go? Allow us the different members of the community to go to one area versus another area, and they have this whole sophisticated system of managing their grasslands,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and 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 within that kind of how they mediate conflict, and um, and within that, I think the other dimension, I guess, with flora. I, if there's something we can learn, I think it's about human-non-human relations and, and this idea of I think so much of their ontology kind of relates to seeing non-human, such as wildlife, as these companionate species mm-hmm. and, and that they play such an important role in, in the larger ecosystem and so on. And they, they really value that. And that doesn't mean there's not sometimes conflicts between them. I mean, there's all of the famous stories of the Maasai killing lions and so on. Um, but but I, uh, so there's certainly conflict and sometimes violence that, it, that characterizes these relationships, but they have a way of understanding the relationships with um, with non-human, their non-human kind of species that are they're co-inhabiting these spaces with. And so that's something I think we could definitely take and try to understand this kind of, yeah, this very Judeo-Christian, this kind of Cartesian, this kind of very modernist ontology that separates human and nature in such ways. I think that's, yeah. I, and I think that's where so much work needs to be done. Um, so can we maybe to get back to Flora's question? I, you know, are there larger models that we can simply take and use, you know, I don't think that's the way it works. Um, I think, um, I think in my work, there's models that are working and we need to protect and and allow communities to self-determine their way forward in such ways that, that they're allowed to kind of maintain those in those particular spaces. Now that doesn't mean I can simply draw on some way of doing things and apply it somewhere else. I think that's kind of where some of the problems have come from in the past anyway but but maybe in terms of what we can learn is in terms of a different way of seeing and understanding human non-human relations I think that can be sources of inspiration and sources of challenging our own kind of modern kind of modern ontology if you will Does that and make sense
0: have a more long-term view
1: yes Not just yeah
0: maximizing yeah. profits in the short run, but exactly. really without maintaining this community, maintaining this environment yeah. in the longer term for future generations as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And how do we, yeah, how do we do how, what is the intrinsic value we ascribe to yeah. all of these other beings and, and 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 objects and so on that we inhabit this space with. Um, and, and again, that really importantly challenging the, the commodified kind of trends and, 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 and ways that seem to be characterizing most of our relationships with the non-human world.
0: Yeah, Okay. there's another question from Flora that is related to it. And she's mm. wondering if there are patterns in the indigenous environmental sustainability which have mitigated the spread of COVID in the communities. In
1: mm. the- Interesting. Um, a lot of the communities I, I, I've worked in are rural enough that they thus far haven't been as affected. We had a lot of fears and panics, of course, for some time. And so as leaders did and um, so I, but I, so, so it hasn't quite, um, impacted them to, at the, to date um, in, in the communities I've been working but um, I mean right off the bat it's just partly it's geography um, these communities live in or are, are not in high density type spaces and, and, and so on so they ha- so they live far enough apart So that there's a protective geographical kind of factor that protects, I think, these communities.
0: Less exposure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, but I'm but there's other things that make them quite vulnerable. Uh, But in terms of like actions they've taken. Or I think if Flora, if I understand Flora's question, I like kind of more like indigenous ways or something, I, 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 I'm not aware of particular things. Although I guess I would maybe emphasize the communication um, patterns and communication, institutions of communication and, and passing along messages and, you know, this labor of, of sharing the news and from one space to another space and and how that travels through networks Mm -hmm. so it's there it's like kind of a social capital a very strong social capital that characterizes um these communities and in particular a certain solidarity a certain cohesion and and how Information passes through those networks. I think is phenomenal, and and I and that's something I, I really learned when I was looking at the HIV/AIDS crisis and and how these communities were, were were mobilizing and 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 responding, and and so I think the same with COVID, undoubtedly. I mean I'm impressed and shocked how quickly the message got passed through through the indigenous kind of communication networks and and, and institutions, and. And yeah, and then frankly, you know, quite quickly in some of the most rural parts, all of a sudden, just something as simple as washing hands and 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 and, and you know, stocking up on the soap and um, and not and sitting sitting apart more, um, meeting outside the small houses rather than inside. You know, there was so there were different things, and but I would attribute that response, and the, if there has been a success of that response, I would attribute it to the incredible communication institutions of communication in the networks that, that, that kind of underpin that community and, uh, and kind of are a major asset and strength of that community. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I completely see that. Okay. Well, I have one final question. And that one yeah. comes from Jamie Henry, who would mm-hmm. first of all like to know that he thinks you rock. Um, and then he, he thinks you rock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, he would like to know if you have a life lesson for students and ex-students anything you'd like to share well just a nice little easy breezy question to end on
1: yeah no kidding um i think what's coming to my mind is something along the lines of know thyself and i've been Digging into or well, wanting to dig more into some of Foucault's later work on the care of the self and and the ethics embroiled in that and how he extends this knowing thyself to you know kind of really developing a critical understanding of yourself, a genealogy of yourself, if you will. And so let me get away from the jargon. Um, But, but I think, I think the most important thing that has emerged for me through all of these experiences, through my education, through experiences with difference and so on has been a real deep understanding of, my own assumptions of the world, my own biases, my own prejudices, my racism, my sexism, my, you know, that I've, 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 I've internalized or that I'm a subject to in this world and, 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 and being intentional about getting to know those ugly parts of myself and, and, and then having the courage to sit with them, to be present with them and hopefully Through that, making some change in in terms of them, and um, so I I think for me, that's my biggest life lesson is is that what putting myself into so many places and spaces of, of difference has challenged me on such fundamental levels to kind of say, understand myself, reflect on where I'm coming from, how I see what my point of view is is and characterized by and and all the good the bad and the ugly within that and 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 being able to yeah being able to slowly slowly chip away at all those kind of more um problematic structures and 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 as a result being able hopefully to have certain competencies to and dispositions to kind of live more harmoniously with with people in the world Um, So that's, I guess, what I would come to. And and that might be in part because I'm teaching anthropology of power right now. And in that class, we do journaling activities where we challenge students to journal on a weekly basis. And and part of that journaling should be kind of a, a critical interrogation, a critical reflection on all of your own assumptions, biases, prejudices, and so on—how, what, what's made you who you are, and what are the good and the bad within that—that that we want to kind of reflect on and change. And um, so maybe, yeah, can I sum it up with um, maybe the, this idea of the change? Um, change starts with ourselves, I guess.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Maybe that's a way. It's challenging. It's confrontational, but it's definitely beautiful. And yeah. Energy, so yeah thank you so much for your time yeah and
1: uh, like a lot of rambling but i hope some points got across.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no i think it was really good so thank <laughs> you so much and um yeah i hope you uh, still have a little bit of fall break to so enjoy as well yeah yeah the rain stops at some point
1: yeah yeah no kidding we shall see but um I'm, I'm writing, trying to do some writing this week. So I'm, you know, probably the rain could be, in some ways, is always positive. Keeps me, keeps me focused <laughs> on my writing.
0: Yeah, the same is for our students. If the weather is bad, that does help you to focus on the yeah, work.
1: Exactly, the grades go up.
0: Well, thank <laughs> you very much.
1: All right, thank you so much as well.